Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant. You're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is called The Law of Chastity Shame Free. This was originally produced and aired by Jody Moore. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the episode. I'm Jody Moore at Bold New Mom. This is episode number 84, The Law of Chastity Shame Free with Jennifer Finlayson Fife. This is Bold New Mom, a podcast for women and some of my favorite men on the planet who understand that the best gift they can give their children or anyone else is a happy, healthy, thriving mother. If you're ready to be bold and you're ready to be a new version of you, you're in the right place. What's up, friends? Welcome to episode number 84. I have Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife joining us again on the podcast. She was on a little while ago, episode 62. If you want to go hear the first one, she is brilliant and amazing, and I love her so much and really appreciate her coming back to talk to us today. I took questions from those of you in the Be Bold community to ask Dr. Finlayson Fife, and we got a bunch of really good questions. Some of them she's addressing today, and some of the others she's going to come back down the road in a couple months and address for us then. So if you don't hear your question addressed today, we will get to it. We decided to focus today's topic on how to talk to your children about their own sexuality and about living the law of chastity, if that's something that you believe in and is important to you and how to navigate this difficult terrain in a way that doesn't invite shame for them or encourage shame around having sexual desires. And I think this is such an important topic and a challenging one. So I can't wait for you to hear what Dr. Finlayson Fife has to say about this topic. I'm going to get right into it. Here you go. Enjoy. So before we get into the topics here, I I did think it would be great to just hear um, what you've been up to in your business. Like what, you know, you can share anything at the end that you want, but I know my listeners are really interested in what you offer and how they can get help from you. So what have you been doing? Well, so I do all these online courses, as you probably know, and the two couples courses that have been very popular already, but we're on a platform that was a little bit harder to access the material. So those have all been upgraded and expanded, and they're now on a learning management system that just makes access easier. And because it's a video of me in a live course setting that's been edited and so on, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think just, it's really quite optimal. So, so it's a video of you. Yeah. It's a video of me teaching in a studio audience kind of thing. And so, um, so you, you know, a lot of people have just written and said how much they like the new courses. So, so that's good. And then I am going to do a course this fall and I haven't come up with a title yet and how to explain exactly what I'm going to be covering, but basically it's going to be something like intimate deception Ooh. and understanding, um, pornography affairs, both as the, uh, deceiver and the deceived. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it just kind of to help people get a handle on how to make sense of these things, what's problematic about it, how I think about it, which is a little different than, which will probably be, you'll see in my response to your third question today. But, you know, I do think about it a little differently than a lot of people do. And so um, 
so that will be in that course offering. And I'm trying to figure out if it'll be five weeks or six or four, but probably, probably be five weeks and I'll do it in September. So that's one of the things on the, I'm trying to think if there's anything that's else cool. I'm going to be grading. I'll be teaching the art of desire course live um, in Seattle. It's probably in April and also in Salt Lake city, probably in May. So I don't do them live very often. And so that's uh, kind of a unique chance for people. I'm going to make that women's sexuality course a little bit longer than the current course, the current online course, because I just feel like it needs to, this issue of self-development needs to be integrated into it more and a little bit more time spent on sexual self-development. So it's taking us longer than you thought it would <laughs> right? <laughs> to get it. Well, some uh, of us. Well, you know, I don't know if I'd quite say it like that. I think a lot of people have really benefited from the course because it's such a paradigm shift. But I think people have asked me to talk more about self-development and what that means. And, uh, and so I just think I need to be able to spend a little more time on it. And it's just a longer, you know, it's such, um, I think we need such an antidote to many of the false messages that, that we've received. And so, you know, just giving people more of an immersion in what I'm talking about, I think, would be helpful. So not that the people... Uh, taking in the material are impaired in their ability. To- <laughs> there's just, you just have more to offer. Yeah, there's it is. More to there's offer. a lot to yeah. it. There's a lot yeah. to it, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, that's all exciting stuff. So if we just keep an eye on your website, get on your mailing list, we'll get updates yeah. about those right. things. Mailing list is definitely the best way to go because okay. then I will Good. let people know when things come up. Yeah, because I but think yeah. Seattle, I have some family in Washington, so I think we should all come oh, to Seattle yeah. and that sounds yeah, awesome. that would be great. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, so I just have three questions here today. And I I will mention to my listeners because I ask people, especially people in my coaching program, my membership group, to send in questions for you. And we had a lot, but you and I kind of decided together to address these three because they all fall in a similar category. And then we'll, like I said, if I can get you to come back in a few months or whatever, we'll address some of sure. some of the others. Sure. So let me just begin by reading this one that that one of my clients and listeners sent in. And it has to do, most of these have to do with helping to teach our children. And so this particular one says, how do we help our teenage children have healthy thoughts about themselves and their sexuality? What do we actually say to them? I love that because everybody's like, what are the exact words that you use to explain that their sexuality is a good thing and understand that and that exploring it is natural at the same time, helping them understand the importance of keeping the law of chastity within the LDS culture. Okay, great. So one thing I would say is if people want more exact words, I do have an online course on how to talk to your LDS kids about sex. That's really about helping kids create more sexual integrity. And I explain what I mean by that. I'll, I'll try and say what I mean in this response, but you know, it's really helping. It would be more concrete in helping you know how to have these conversations. But, um, but to respond to this question, I mean, I think one of the challenges that are expressed in this question is that for so long that we um, have conflated one of the false traditions, I think, in our um, that well-intentioned teachers often hand down is a conflation of sexuality and evil, that we make them one and the same. 
And that the other thing we do is that we make our sexuality as Satan's inroad into our spirit. And so that creates a problem because then we have a very difficult time being able to talk about sexuality and what it is to create goodness within our sexuality, with our sexuality, within um, the framework of the law of chastity. So um, I think that, again, as I may have said in the first podcast, I think that this conflation is a borrow from other Christian interpretations, that the body is an impediment to spirituality. You know, that the, that our lusts and our desires and our limitations inhibit our enlightenment. And LDS theology is that the body is necessary for spiritual enlightenment, that the body is critical for becoming more godlike, that we believe in parents in heaven who are embodied beings. And we need to embrace that theology better. Uh-huh. Because as you've maybe heard me say ad nauseum, if you've listened to me on other podcasts, is that sexuality is not good or evil. It is. Sexuality is. It's a part of being human. And we're sexual from birth. We can't get around that, even though many of us wish we could. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The question is whether or not we use our sexuality to do goodness in the world or to do ill in the world. And because it's such a powerful way of being in relationship with others, uh, you can do a lot of harm with your sexuality in your relationships with other people. Um, but you also can do a lot of good. Okay. If you, and one of the reasons why I think we have a conservative, uh, theology, a a sexually conservative theology is it's, it's wise to be restrained or to be very careful about your sexual self-expression because it is a powerful form of engagement with yourself and with other people. So I think that, um, Okay, so I think it's kind of a tricky line in some ways that we're trying to walk as parents, because on the one hand, we believe that sexuality is good, but it isn't quite good yet as an adolescent, right? Right. And so, I mean, I think when we interpret this too rigidly, then it means that we shame our emerging sexuality, our children's emerging sexual feelings and desires and impulses. And I think this is really wrong. You want your child's sexual impulses and desires and thoughts to be coming on board. It's really critical to being capable of doing good in an intimate, committed relationship to be able to have some degree of sexual self-integration. Right, so I know people that have completely shut it down, male and female, and they're, they feel so unable to engage this part of themselves, either once they get married or either even when they want to start dating, that that they feel sort of unprepared and unable to start moving into an adult intimate relationship. And that's a deep disservice. This is not a more righteous person for having done that, right? So we want our children, we don't want to shame that they're feeling those feelings. Of course they are. It's good that they are. And I think that one of the challenges that a lot of people are saying is, well, what about masturbation? I think that mass, this is a position I believe is that masturbation is a normal part of sexual self-development. Now, while it's, it's normal in the sense that children, babies will touch themselves, um, 
babies in utero will touch themselves, children will touch themselves. It's a part of sexual self-awareness. I think we can acknowledge that fact and even acknowledge it with our adolescents while still promoting a desire to kind of inhibit our sexual development. So there's this tricky line between sort of accepting as good your sexual capacity and choosing to function in a more conservative way around exploring and developing your sexual capacity, given one's belief in waiting until marriage. And so there's a way of making choices that are not about self-shaming and about being a horrible person who's lost God's love, right, because he or she masturbated or he or she was lured by an image that aroused these feelings that made them curious and interested and so on, and still make sort of deliberate choices. And so one of the ways I think you can help your kids do that is to being very normalizing, like, you know, if someone tells you those feelings are wrong or evil, that that's not right. These are God given. They're very important. They're very good. But what you do with your sexuality really, really matters. And so one way to help you think about it is what is it that you want ultimately? And and I'll say this as an, as an, parenthetically, is that the earlier you have these conversations with your kids and the more frequently you have them, the more you can actually be a mentor to them in their lives. Most parents shut this all down and just hope for the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I was saying to my husband, I bet my course would w- the how to talk to your kids about sex course would sell better if it was how to have Jennifer talk to your kids about yeah, oh, sex. Oh, so much better. You should just <laughs> make a book that I can give them. <laughs> exactly. Because because it's so hard for us, you know, where there's a natural anxiety that you know, parents and kids sexuality shouldn't mix. So there's a natural discomfort, um, which is good, but they still need our mentoring. They need our guidance. They need our wisdom. They need to see that we're at peace with our sexuality and they need to see that we can tolerate the the fact that people in the larger culture will relate to sexuality in, in more crass and reducing ways and still not be so, not have a response of terror towards that, to really understand that you're walking a wiser path and a path and a good path and to be able to offer that to your children. Um, Because what's wiser and good about it is it is accepting of your sexuality. It's comfortable with your sexual nature. It's comfortable with nudity. It's comfortable with the fact of that matter because it's it's your God-given body, but you're making deliberate choices towards what you want. And so a lot of times I think it's we don't do enough of this with our adolescents is to have them articulate what kind of sexual relationship do they desire to have someday? What mm-hmm. kind of emotional romantic relationship, what kind of sexual relationship do they want to have? And are their choices helhelping them get f- closer to that goal or farther from that goal? Hmm, that's right? an interesting so that, way to think about it. Yeah. So that they're because what I think of sexual integrity is that you have aligned your your biological uh, self, your your how to say it, you're integrated with your body as well as your hi, your highest values, the things that you really believe in and that you really matter, and that you've created an integration of those things. It's very similar with food. The body has a natural inclination to eat as many calories um, as it can. it's it's part of survival. Sugar is very appealing to us for that reason. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an important reality in terms of keeping hum human beings alive. But if you just let the most base impulse run your life, it's, it's not going to necessarily get you where you want to be. What you want to think about is what relationship do I want to have to my physical health? What kind of relationship do I want to have to my body? If I want to be healthy and to exercise and to eat healthful foods and to enjoy pleasures of sweets once in a while, because that's, you know, it's nice to have pleasure in your life. Okay. So what does it look like in terms of the choices I make? It's not a shame-based approach. And uh, I'm a loathsome, awful person if I eat too much sugar or if I masturbated or I looked at an image or something. Instead, what is it that I'm shooting for? And being true to myself is very important to making the choices that are going to bring me into deeper alignment with what I value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I teach is that circumstances are always neutral until we have thoughts about them. And that's what then makes them positive or negative in our minds. And so yeah. what I hear you describing, like our sexuality, like you said, is not good or bad. It just is, right? right? That's the circumstance. Right. Or even, you know, if, um, my child is masturbating or I masturbate or whatever. That could be a circumstance, right? And then right. I have thoughts about it that make it either negative or positive or what have you. And, and to kind of step back and separate out our thinking and our opinion. And I just think it's healthy to question our thinking. Of course, we're supposed Absolutely. to have thoughts. We're supposed to add meaning to things around us. But just to question it and not take it at face value that it's necessarily serving us. Right. in the best way. But I also have a question for you, Jennifer, and I just sure. want you to tell me if I'm thinking about this in the right way. Because again, when we're teaching our children, it is challenging because I feel like if I'm vague at all, they don't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So it's hard to be specific. And yet, there isn't, it's not so black and white, right? It, I, it's mm -hmm. not that I can say this is okay and this isn't. I want them to, especially as they mature, to navigate on their own what is good mm -hmm. and righteous for them. And it, it's going, might be different for different people. Mm -hmm. um, but partly the way I think about it is the same way I think about emotion. Like I want my children to know that they can experience and, and will and should experience all emotions and that it's mm -hmm. not a problem to feel sad or to feel mad or to feel afraid. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that we just get to act out on every emotion. So I yeah. might be in line at the grocery store and be irritated that the line is moving slow, but it doesn't mean I start yelling at everyone or that I hit somebody or like, I don't just act out. I, it's okay for me to be irritated. It's not a problem. It's right. part of my humanness, but I also need to have the maturity to control my behavior. And, and I, so I don't know if that's a good analogy in terms of their sexuality that they yeah. should have it, but that doesn't mean that necessarily act out. Yeah. On you everything. don't have to act on exactly. You don't have to act on it. Certainly not. And in fact, you know, adults have sexual feelings that they don't act on. And yeah. if we did, if we acted on them at all times, we'd be in jail. Most right. Of us. <laughs> even, even when I am married, right. It, it right. Mean exactly. I just act out on everything. Uh, right. that so, feels... so part of, so part of living life well, actually it's just tolerating that you're going to have feelings and thoughts that you choose not to engage or act out upon. And the more, the deeper your ability to do that, the better you're going to live your life because you insert some judgment between an impulse and a decision. 
And that's just very important. I think what I would maybe want to shy away from is that it would always be bad for somebody to, you know, I think this idea like touching your own body is somehow bad. I think this is, again, we're so terrified of eroticism. We're so terrified, you know, the idea that your sexuality is only good if it's comforting someone else is wrong. I don't think that's right. I think it's more around what does it create in us and what does it cultivate in us? You know, one of the tricky findings that I uh, had in my dissertation research was that women who had masturbated in adolescence, even though most of these women, because they were active members, had repented of it and decided not to keep doing it and so on, they transitioned most happily and easily into marriage because they had a strong sense of already having some sexual self-awareness and I think very importantly, some sense of belonging to their own sexuality. It wasn't being woken up by a future husband, if that in fact works, because often that doesn't end up working. Right. <laughs> um, right. Uh, but, and, and so, you know, it makes you question, like, I can certainly understand how masturbation can be a very bad thing. If you're looking at porn and you're masturbating and you're using that as a way to escape feelings and you're not... Um, you are living in a fantasy land of sexuality as an adolescent. I think it's deeply problematic, but that's a little different than sexual emerging sexual self-awareness while making some conservative and deliberate decisions around where you want to ultimately end up. And so I am concerned about overshaming of masturbation for, you know, these adolescent boys that are not passing the sacrament and, and some of these boys that are very scrupulous and, and very, you know, feel deeply ashamed, like they're defective in some way, and their sexuality gets so overloaded with shame. And it's it's really problematic. It is not a good thing to do. It doesn't make them, these are the boys that are more likely to start looking at porn. These are the people that are going to have more trouble in their, because they're carrying so much anxiety and shame around a normative behavior. And so you want to say, it's normal, it will happen. Or, you know, it, you, you know, you may do this at times and I think this is where you're aiming. And so you want to be wise about it. You don't want to use it as a way to escape other feelings. You don't want to, you don't want to use your sexuality in a way that's going to undermine your ability to be at peace in your heart, to be at peace in your relationships, to create a good life. To, to You don't want it to undermine your self-respect. So there is this tension between saying it's there and it's good. One of the differences in the women that did well in marriage and the ones that didn't do well, and what I mean is like transition into sexuality and to enjoy their sexual relationships. The women who did well, their first um, experience of sexual arousal, that was one of my questions that I asked them, was what was your experience of your, what was your interpretation of it or what meaning did you give to it? The women who did poorly would have a shame response, like that they'd done something wrong, that something was bad, that they had those feelings. Like even if it was just like sitting on, you know, a toy in a particular way and they could feel their body respond, that they would feel like they were being bad. And the women who did well would have a feeling of like excited anticipation, like, ooh, there's something there's something cool. <laughs> this, is cool. Good, this is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And seeing that God and God, and they believe God saw it as a good thing. Like that it was, there, there was nothing bad about it. It was just not yet. Right. Not, yeah. And so that's, I think a very important interpretive when you say it just is. And then what meaning do you give to it? I think we have to really think about the meanings that we give to behaviors. Um, 
and how deeply we problematize them because that has its own underbelly that I see in my practice all the time. Yeah. And I kind of think it's helpful to think about shame is uh, something's wrong with me, right? Like I am, I am not good in some way. Whereas guilt, it could be a more focus on behavior. But even with guilt, I teach that guilt is just information. It's just your brain trying to notify you that that something you're doing may not align with your values, but it may not be relevant information. Like I might have guilt about um, working and not spending enough time with my children. So I use guilt as information to stop and assess my life and how I'm spending yes. my time. And I may yes. decide it's not relevant. I don't I don't need to feel guilty. It's fine. I feel good about what yeah. I'm doing, right? So same yeah. with, again, with the sexuality, that guilt could be useful to let me stop and take a look at am I living the way I want to? Do I want to make a change or not? But right. the shame, you know, being the the reflection of self really is not useful. And, and my understanding is that it drives, to your point, really um, unhealthy behavior in the end. It drives yes. us the other direction. Yes, definitely. So, definitely. Well, so one other question, and then I, I would love to have you expand a little bit more about just the problems that pornography causes. But before we get to that, I do have several clients who have come to me and I haven't known how to answer their question who have said that they have, you know, to your point, very young children, even babies, right, that engage in that type of behavior in the masturbation or in touching themselves and just wanting to have a better understanding of of what is considered healthy and is there anything that a parent should be doing or, or advising children at a really young age in that situation? I think generally speaking, you don't want to have a big response to a very young child, like a toddler who's touching themselves. You know, they are just doing what is completely normal and valuable, which is to explore their own body. You know, they're like, wait, what is this whole thing that is mine? You know, mm -hmm. and, and it's part of integrating a sense of self is this that your body belongs to you. This is one of the books that I actually read to my children and I think is a very valuable book, even for protecting kids from sexual abuse is to teach them this very basic but important idea that their body belongs to them. And that's the it's name of the book? It's, your body belongs yes, to you? Yes, your body belongs okay. to you. I can't remember the name of the author right now. I'll link to it in the show sure. notes. But, uh, you know, it's basically this idea that this is your body. And from our language, this is God's gift to you. This is your body. And you get to decide who touches it. You get to decide how you engage that body. You have a sense of ownership over this body. Um, it doesn't belong to others. And I think when we, the way we fracture ourselves and our children is to give the message that their body isn't quite theirs, like that they owe physical affection to a grandparent that they don't want to give it to, for example, or that a wife owes it to her husband, that kind of thing that I think undermines this sense of integration and, and integrity of self that I think is really, really critical to sexual self-development. Um, so when a child's exploring herself or himself, it's normal and it's good. And you want her to understand the body that God gave her. Um, and what she or he is going to be looking to is how a parent is responding to that. If a parent is getting very anxious and really overworked and or saying, you know, don't, it's dirty, it's bad, you, they're getting information that somehow there's something bad about their body. And it's not helpful. Like, you know, I want my children to be, what's so remarkable is that 
my kids have grown up in a home where they know that I'm very comfortable in my own skin. They know I really like their dad and their dad likes me and we're physically affectionate in front of each, in front of the kids. I mean, obviously to an appropriate degree, Mm -hmm. but they know they can feel that sexuality is an important part of our lives without being privy to more than they want to be privy to. Um, and so they, there is a, just a general comfort with the body, with sexuality. And I have two teenage boys and a soon to be adolescent girl. And there really is, I don't know how to explain it, but there's just a lot of comfort around the topic. They will come and ask me things. They will ask me what certain things mean. I mean, they're still teenagers and they're, they're like, you know, managing that boundary between a parent and a child in a typical way. But, but you can tell that there's not a lot of anxiety around this topic and that they observe some of their friends and their friends' choices and see them as kind of, as a little bit, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what the word is that they would say, like a little bit nuts, like a little bit off. Like they, they kind of are, you know, seeing it as, they see it for what it is, that it's kind of immature behavior. <clears throat> and I think it has a lot to do with how they've wired in their own emerging sexuality. And so I think that, you know, it speaks to when you give them a way to accept this part of themselves, they're more able to make good choices. You know, they're more able to feel comfortable with the, this emerging reality inside of themselves and keep living the important parts of their lives, like their academics and their development as, you know, in their different skills and capacities and not be sort of transfixed by it so much. Where working with some adolescent clients whose families have high anxiety, they're, they're like almost captured in this very negative entrapping way around pornography and their sexuality. And you see the toll it takes on their sense of self um, and also um, on their just their sexual and psychological development. So, but going back to your question, I think, you know, at a certain point with a child, you're going to want to make a sort of privacy um, s- distinction. If the child is touching himself or herself and they're, you know, four years old and they're in the living room, you might say, you know, that's, that's a private behavior. And so you don't want to do that when people are around. Right? And just be sort of matter of fact, like, or it's even it's impolite. Even that is just a matter of fact statement of saying, you know, there's, there's sort of something to be said about being aware of the people around you and that that's an impolite behavior in public. And just leave it at that. But you're not shaming the curiosity or the fact that it feels good. You're just asking them to kind of navigate their relationship to pleasure and to being responsible in the world. And it's just sort of the beginning of that. And so in my course, I talk about this more like as if you have a pre-adolescent who's masturbating and, you know, how, and how do you make sense of it? How do you know if somebody has been being sexually molested and that's why they're curious? So that's all in there if, if people want more information about it. But but yeah, I do think parents very much need to be a kind of guide at every stage. And that role shifts as your child gets older. Okay, awesome. So describe for us then, um, I thought this was a good question someone sent in. Like, what is it that happens in the mind of somebody when it does become unhealthy? So specifically with regards to pornography, um, because I agreed with this client who said, it seems like if we understand it a little bit better, we'll be a little better at explaining it to our children. And how do we recognize when it's 
when it's becoming unhealthy and, and heading in that direction? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think one thing I would say is there's a lot of uh, people out there that run pornography addiction programs and things who who demonstrate research on that the, that pornography is, is is damaging to the brain and it literally does damage and, you know, it creates an addictive process and so on. And then there's a body of research that completely debunks those ideas. Um, I don't, I, I'm not a researcher and I don't have, let me say, I'm not sure if there's any truth to the idea that it truly does damage to the brain. Okay. So what, and the reason why I question it, which is not to say that it can't be damaging, okay, to one's ability to be in the world. So the, the reason I question it is because part, some, part of the research that gets cited is the idea that when you're looking at pornography, the same part of your brain that lights up when you're doing cocaine is lighting up when you look at pornography. But it's also the same part of your brain that lights up when you are bearing your testimony or making love to your spouse mm-hmm. that you or love falling in love, isn't it dopamine? Or falling sort of? in love. Exactly. Or yeah. falling in love. So the, I, to make it mean that it's therefore addictive and therefore your brain is taking over is the wrong causal connection. It just means the pleasure center in the brain is being lit up. And that's no shocker, okay, because people wouldn't do porn if it wasn't pleasurable. Right. (laughs) Uh, uh, What I think of more is the habits of being that are being created and what they express about how you see yourself and the world and what they reinforce about how you see yourself and you see the world and what impact they have on your sexual development and on your ability to be in a meaningful normative, intimate relationship. So I think of it more in terms of that same question of, is what I'm doing bringing me farther or closer to my goal of being in a meaningful, intimate, loving relationship someday, right? Um, And I would say, you know, being unwilling to go to any movie because sometimes you feel sexual feelings, which is one of my clients, um, I would say is leading you farther from that goal, being unwilling to date because sometimes you have sexual feelings or being unwilling to kiss anyone because you might feel sexual feelings would lead you farther from that goal. On the other hand, looking at pornography all the time, which can be quite misogynistic, it doesn't all misogynistic, but it certainly can be. And trying to formulate your sense of male, female relationships and the world and what is normative, it, it's, Pornography is not a good source for education, not for sexual education. It's not. (laughs) And so, um, you know, that can certainly lead you farther, especially if it's laced with shame and anxiety and sneaking and taking. Um, You know, so I think that one of the, you know, I have a client like that came in and said, you know, I have a pornography addiction and he was referring to it as his disease and his illness. And in reality, he's talking about his disease and his illness as if it's almost a privileged position. It's not he, he who's looking at the porn. It's his disease that's doing it. You know, And it's just kind of interesting that on one hand, he's taking a very pathologized view of himself. And on the other hand, it's, it's underscoring his privilege in the marriage and that the wife is there trying to deal with her husband who now has an impairment, so to speak, and makes him less trustworthy in her mind. And my you know, response to him was basically, you have much worse than a disease. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have such a, you have a very deep sense of entitlement, right? That you feel comfortable deceiving your spouse and engaging in behavior that you know she would not be okay with and that you profess to not be okay with. 
And that's a problematic position, especially if you're a guy claiming to want to be trusted. And, and so I'm dealing with it more directly around you are actively making choices that go against what you profess to believe and certainly go against what you know your wife feels comfortable with and then either keeping it from her or confessing it to her, but in a kind of purge way, like you purge it, you know, and then you back to it. Um, and there's no integrity in the position. And I'm really interested in helping people get aligned internally that they are living up to their own values and not, uh, and recognizing the problematic, the, how fracturing it is to relationships, to others and to themselves to not align themselves internally. So it sounds like it almost a big part of the problem anyway is just the deception and the distorted sense of entitlement or sense of self and sense of relationship, um, even beyond yes. what it does sexually. That, that, absolutely. Because right? first of all, there's a, there, you, there's a lot more distress in people who believe that looking at porn is bad and that are doing it. They're more likely to call themselves porn addicts. They're much more likely to feel low self-esteem and to feel like they're worthless than someone who's say not uh, uh, religious or not a member of the church. They may look at porn and, and, and sort of see their, their spouse may even maybe know and even be comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, I've worked with non LDS people and she's like, Oh yeah, he looks, you know, like it's no big deal for her. Yeah. Because it doesn't go against their sort of, and I don't think it's doing really any damage because it's sort of above board and comfortable enough and, and there's no, um, it's not, um, what's the word obsessive. It's like, it's just every once in a while he looks at it or they look at it and it's not kind of going against their moral positions. Well, it goes and back to shame again too, right? Yes, and there's not the right. shame behind it because I think shame thrives off of hiding and secrecy. Absolutely. Which Absolutely. can be, yeah. So when there's not the shame behind it, it, it becomes less... Um, I don't know, less appealing even possibly. Yes, ab absolutely it does. Absolutely. I have somebody who um, who basically, you know, had a brother who was a, a quote unquote porn addict and was being treated that way. And it, it kind of just destroyed his morale, his older brother. And then this younger brother who saw himself walking the same path, all the pathologizing of it and would pray and plead to not do it. And the more he sort of obsessed about it, the more he would still like fall back into it. And he finally got to a place where he said, you know, I'm not going to hide anything from you, wife, uh, and I will be above board about any of it, but I am not going to demand of myself that I never, ever look at it again. It's just not working. And I need to just, I'm going to be above board, but I'm just not going to make that demand of myself. And what his experience was is that his, the appeal went way, way down. Mm, yeah. He got way more uh, comfortable way less self-hating, way more trustworthy to his wife. So and, fascinating. Right. Okay. Right. It's about integration and moderation in all things. That's yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, even when it comes to food, you know, sometimes I find Absolutely. if I'm like no chocolate chip cookies, I can't stop thinking about them. But if exactly. I just have, a, have one, then I can move yeah. on. And all the research, exactly, all the research points to that. It's yeah. like it's sort of just an integration of pleasure. 
actually helps you live in this sort of moderate way. Whenever you say, I'm never going to have the pleasure of a chocolate chip cookie again, the next thing you know, you're baking up a batch. Yeah. <laughs> and eating the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, this has all been so useful. Um, any last, any other final thoughts you want to leave with us? No, I can't think of it. That's not a terrible question. I, I guess what I would say is I actually think we have within our theology, we have a beautiful theology that really does provide for a kind of wonderful integration of our sexuality and to be able to experience a spirituality through the body and through our spiritual uh, through our sexuality that I think many of us never really get a hold of because we, or even come to understand because we're so anxious about our sexual nature. And it's such a shame because our theology offers it to us. Uh, but we have to tease through all, comb through all the false traditions that we've borrowed from the larger culture that undermine our ability to really do this and to offer it to our children. Yeah, I love that idea. And I think that there's a lot of room for examples of that. And that's one of the things I love about you is that you are an example of an alternative way to think about it. I mean, you even use that word, false tradition, there are some false traditions that now we have to kind of undo, or, um, you know, create another option, another way to think yeah. about it, another way to talk about it. And I'm yeah. totally up for doing that work. And, and just I, I when you talk about, the relationship you have with your teenagers and just their comfort level around it. I'm thinking it, could we just have like a behind the scenes video of how you guys talk about this? <laughs> Cause I think examples of what it looks like are going to be yeah. really helpful, but you know, that's our work to do. Yeah. So, And it is, it is in the examples I'll say this, but it's also in how integrated the parent is because the kids map the minds of their parents. They, they watch their parents day in and day out and they know how is my mom responding when this image comes onto the television? How does my mom respond when I tell her what my friend said at school, you know, and you, you show them, you, you teach them so much in them watching you, whether or not you want to teach them what you're teaching them. In that moment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh -huh. I like yeah. the, um, you know, we always hear the airplane analogy and that you have to secure your own oxygen mask before helping the child. But I always say, no, 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 we are not in that analogy. We're not, the person on the plane where the flight attendant and your child yeah. is on this flight and sometimes there's turbulence and That's when right. it's turbulent and the captain says everything's fine if you're not sure you believe him you look at the flight attendant and yeah. if she's panicked then <laughs> you're I, I would panic anyway right yeah. but if she's just <laughs> sitting there reading her book then right. you're like okay yeah seems like everything's right. fine and that comes from like you said even if i think that i'm saying all the right things my child can read my body language and That's my nonverbals right. and my cues and if i'm comfortable and i realize the plane is not going down this is yep. just a little turbulence then yep. they will pick up on that i, I That's really right. do believe that absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah so, okay one of the well, kindest things you. you can do you're Thank so you welcome. again for coming on today. Um, I will pleasure. link to all of your stuff in the show notes, your your classes, your website, the book that you recommended. And we look forward to having you come back again in a few months when you have a little more time. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about how to talk to your kids about sex, visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website today and look for the How to Talk to Your LDS Kids About Sex online course under the online courses tab. 
You can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website at www.finlayson-fife.com. Thanks for listening.